I'll tell you something I love about being in France, in addition to some seriously delicious butter, and that is the wide selection of wines I can find in France for low prices. It can be much more difficult to source those same bottles back in the States, and that's why I love to buy wines out of France with Ideal Wine. I have bottles shipped to me, hassle-free. It's easy. Ideal Wine has a new auction every week and is a great source for iconic names like Ouette, Louis Roeder, and Domaine Lefleve, as well as rising stars like Arnaud Lachaud, Gonon, and Tissot. Find the wines you'd rather be drinking at idealwine.com. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com and have the wine shipped to you in the States. Use the promo code FIRST, F-I-R-S-T, for $15 off your first order of $150 or more. Hey, that's $15 you could save, and that is some good butter money. See for yourself at Ideal Wine. I'm Levy Dalton, and this is All Drink to That, where we get behind the scenes of the wine business. Recently, the Red Hook Winery in Brooklyn suffered extensive, devastating damage as a result of Hurricane Sandy. Today, Abe Schroner, a partner in Red Hook Winery, stops by to tell us what it's like living in the aftermath of the storm. Abe's on the show today. Abe is from the Red Hook Winery, where he is a partner. Abe, what's going on? We're in the midst of saving the Red Hook Winery to whatever degree we can. When I arrived in town about a week ago, the place was absolutely devastated. And it'd be, it was an even worse shape two or three days before I got here. The team and a bunch of volunteers from the Red Hook Initiative had worked, it seemed like, day and night for two or three days to put the place back in some order. And they accomplished so much that it was possible to come in and start looking at tanks and fermentations and barrels and taking stock of the place. But on the day after the storm, it was nothing but pure devastation. So Sandy really laid a lot of waste to what you've been doing for several years. Waste born from the sea, absolutely. I mean, the place, the place looked like a total write-off on Tuesday morning. And I would say within two or three days, it looked like it might be possible to salvage something. But it took that two or three days to even imagine that. And this was pretty much right during the middle of uh, the vintage harvest time in terms of getting your grapes into the winery. It was the tail end. The, the last fruit of the year had arrived on the Friday before the storm. And how many years back? Because when I visited a while ago, it felt like there was multiple years in reserve in the barrels waiting to be bottled. Things that you were, you know bringing along an elevage. How many years of work are we talking about potentially lost there? We have some wines that are in barrel for more than two years. So there were still some 2010 wines in barrel. And I think that there might have been one 2009 Riesling. So what was at stake was a small amount of wine from 2009 and a significant amount of wine from 2010 and 100% of the wine from 2011 and 2012. So, I mean, the growers you work with, do they have other outlets or are you their primary buyer? We're not the primary buyer from any growers as far as I know. It's very interesting on Long Island. In Northern California, where I learned how to make wine, which is my home base, there's a big culture of selling and buying grapes. On Long Island, it is somewhat uncommon. 
Long Island is much more like older regions in France where if you grow grapes, you make wine. You don't grow grapes and then sell the grapes. So everybody that we buy grapes from, with perhaps one exception, is a winery or a winemaker. Are they invested in 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 helping you uh, rebuild? If that's the result, are they are they in there helping you, or what's going on? That's a really interesting question, and I have been so concentrated on trying to do whatever I can to preserve the wines from 2012 that I haven't interacted with the growers at all. And I think that my colleagues, Mark Snyder, Christopher Nicholson, Darren Palace, they've been in much more touch with them than I have been. But I would say. Until right now, all of us are just focused on taking stock of uh, what each one of us has. Some damage was done on the North Fork of Long Island, but not much. And no, nobody's really reached out to us with an explicit offer to help in any way. But on the other hand, I think that there's not much that they could do. Mm -hmm. And why don't we talk a little bit about the Red Hook Winery and the original vision? How did you get started down there? And what, what, what is it that you were hoping to achieve? It's a good and it's an interesting question and is particularly relevant at this moment of devastation to all of Red Hook because the birth of the project was in the neighborhood. In an interesting way, the birth of the project wasn't in vineyards or in winemaking. It was in this really interesting urban, industrial, and residential neighborhood with a great history and an architectural past that's visible right in front of you. Mark Snyder had an office there for his wine distributorship, Angel Share, on the corner of Van Brunt and Van Dyke. And he had said for a couple of years before I ever visited him that the neighborhood was amazing and that I would love it. And at the time, I was the kind of person whose relationship to New York was so firmly rooted in Manhattan that I really had a prejudice against the boroughs. I thought that they, they weren't uh, worthy of my attention or time spent. So it took me a while to get out to Red Hook. And from the first time that I got there, I was amazed. My eyes were so open. And I think the thing that struck me the most was the combination of the proximity to the sea and also the amazing Civil War architecture. And so he and I started thinking right away, what can we do in this neighborhood that is equal to the coolness of the neighborhood? And I think it was Mark who had the idea of making wine there. I'm not sure which one of us did, but both of us were determined to do something interesting there to take advantage of what was possible on the edge of the water and in these beautiful old buildings, but to add something to the neighborhood too. And we eventually came up with the idea of making wine. So you had already had a project in California, the Solium project, and you decided uh, to do a New York State project that, from New York State grapes as well. That's exactly right. Mark and I knew from the beginning that as much as we wanted to make wine in Brooklyn, that there would be something was somewhere between stupid and counterproductive to haul in grapes from California when we had some proximity to a growing region. Honestly, neither of us knew much about New York State wines, and the little that we knew did not inspire confidence. And I remember saying to Mark, we don't have to do anything amazing. All we have to do is something good. And I thought the likelihood of our being able to do something good was strong. It wasn't until... We had this idea, I think maybe in 2006 or early in 2007, and the first time that we visited vineyards was in the spring of 2008, and it was the first time as an adult that I had been to the North Fork of Long Island, and I was astounded by the farming that I saw there. So I knew even before we'd ever harvested a single cluster that we could make really good wine. So in, in the realization of what's happened in the aftermath of the hurricane, where do you think things lay for the future of the winery? It's so hard to know because the, the devastation 
even if we succeed in saving the wines that were threatened by the water, the devastation to the facility and to the equipment is almost total. Mark knows so much more about this than I do. I've really been focused only on fermentations full of grapes. But my sense is that the tasting room area, which he developed really carefully, not opulently at all, but the place had to be renovated and outfitted, that I, th I think, from my understanding, that's a total loss. And we don't have power at the winery yet, so we haven't been able to test all of our equipment. But the expectation is that all of our equipment, um, any equipment with mechanical parts, is destroyed. The forklift is already a write-off. There's no question about that. We have very expensive pump, two very expensive pumps, one mostly for moving liquid, one for moving must. Our expectation is those two are destroyed. If we don't lose any wine, I think according to Mark's calculations, we could still be out close to a million dollars. And if we lose wine, then it becomes incredibly and almost incalculably worse. A lot of people seem to feel that the response to Sandy and a part of government and uh, utilities and uh, rescue workers has varied a little bit depending on the location. Uh, what is your sense on the ground of what the situation is today, two weeks after the storm in Red Hook? You know, my, my head has been so much stuck within the winery that I do not have a clear sense. But I can tell you this, the first time that we saw Con Ed vehicles in Red Hook was Friday afternoon. We do not yet have power on Pier 41. I think there are many, many reasons for that. I, at the moment, am not inclined to criticize Con Ed for what they've done, at least as far as we're concerned. There are people, tens of thousands, maybe even 100,000 people who live in the Red Hook housing projects only a few blocks away. As of yesterday, if I recall correctly, they still not have still did not have power. That for me is a much bigger concern. Um, let's talk a little bit about you and how you ended up in this spot to decide to do wine, uh, just in general, because it wasn't originally the career path. Uh, how did you end up here? That's true. I had never ever anticipated making wine at any point in my life until suddenly I was in the midst of it. I had. Um, I had imagined since the time that I was maybe late in my undergraduate years that I'd be some kind of scholar for the rest of my life. And I was very happy as a scholar. I, I got a PhD in ancient Greek philosophy from the University of Toronto and spent a vast amount of time reading Homer and other philosophers and poets from the early years of Greek civilization and eventually got a job teaching at St. John's College in Annapolis, Maryland where I had been an undergraduate, and I was extraordinarily happy there with no intention of ever doing anything else except for being a student and a teacher, but went to Northern California on my sabbatical, had the opportunity to learn something about grape growing. My, the origin of my interest in grape growing was the following. I was a consumer of wines like many people that you know and that you've worked with, and had an amateur's interest and maybe even a passion and I would say at the time that my sabbatical occurred, what I was most interested in studying at St. John's was plant physiology or something that you might even call something like the philosophy of the nature of plants. Because I wasn't a botanist and I was very far from a trained botanist. But anyway, I had a real interest in growing things. And it seemed like a really good way to spend my sabbatical, to combine my amateur passion for wine with a... By the way, I had no knowledge at all about grape growing. I'll, I'll tell you a little more in a minute about how little that I knew. 
But it seemed like a really good idea to combine my passion for wine with my passion, at least at the moment, um, for plant physiology and to go to Napa and to learn something about the intersection between vine physiology and wine quality. And I knew so little about grape growing that when I got to Napa in the fall of 1998, I did not know how many times a year grapes were harvested. You know, I still don't because the whole Chinese thing where they, they harvest like a couple times a year always trips me out. It's also true in Southern California. There are places in this country where grapes are harvested twice a year. Is that true? Yeah. I didn't know that. Yeah, in the desert east of Los Angeles and east of San Diego, two harvests a year. Oh, I didn't know. They treat the vines like row crops. They plant them, they plow them under when they feel like they're done with them. You know, I was in Japan and I was like, hey, how many times do you harvest this rice? And they're like, yeah, just once. And I was like, I thought you did multiple times. And like, they do in other countries, but not, mm -hmm. you know, it's, it's, it seems like it varies depending on what they're looking for. I don't know. But it's interesting about the, the history with ancient Greek because, you know, when you, when you think about like Hesiod, works and days and certain Roman writers, you know, on nature and that kind of thing. You know, there is a real interest in that segment no question. about farming, about plant physiology. So it's, it's not so disparate. It's just one is, you know, learning of what people said a long time ago and others implementing what's happening today. I agree with you completely. I feel like I have left very little bit, very little behind from my last life. It's more like I'm adding to it or slipping things in between. So you got started, you were working as like a harvest intern for uh, Stag's Leap Wine Cellars? Yes. With, uh, mm -hmm. Warren Winizarski? Yeah, that's right. How mm -hmm. was that? It was, it was amazing. One of the things that was amazing about it is the cellar at Stag's Leap Wine Cellar was and probably still is run in a very hierarchical way, like a French kitchen. Oh, is that true? And it was absolutely amazing because my responsibilities were extremely clearly delineated. And there was no question that at this stage in my education, I was ever going to touch anything like a pump. Yeah. And so I had this view that winemaking was something reserved for people who'd been through a test by fire or maybe even several battles, something like that. I really had this kind of Homeric view and thought that I was very far from the battle itself. And I went from Stag's Leap in 1998 to Luna in 1999, where I worked under John Kongsgaard, who had absolutely the opposite view, where he threw you into the middle of the fray and taught you everything and insisted that you learn as much as you could as quickly as possible. And it seems like that's kind of more the approach that you've taken in your own learning. Because when I read your reports or writings about the work that you've done, it seems like it's really a, an analyzation of a, a learning process. John ran Luna as a fantastic production winery, but he also ran it as a university at the same time. And I feel to some degree the same responsibility. And even if it weren't a responsibility, it's something that I absolutely love to do. So, uh, you know, what is it that you've focused on doing at Scolium? I feel like... Uh, there was some more ex experimentation. Maybe things have uh, branched out in different directions. There were some. There were some partnerships and some collaborations at times with like Vare. Uh, what 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 has been the reality of what's gone on out there? In your words, well, the reality is really constant investigation and experimentation. And that sounds like maybe I'm running like a research station or something like that. It's not that at all. I'm just educating myself. And even to say that we're experimenting, we're experimenting in a certain sense in just the slightest ways. It's not that we're doing things that are super radical at all. But I'll give you an example. When I started working with John at Luna, he really early on, uh, I would say, between the harvest of 99 and the harvest of 2000, encouraged me strongly to begin making my own wines, even if only for the sake of learning and not for the sake of commerce. 
And in the fall of 2000, he hooked me up with some Chardonnay grapes, and he put me in charge of everything from picking the grapes to deciding how they'd be fermented, monitoring the fermentation, any intervention at all. John had a regime that we thought of as a low SO2 regime, which means a small amount of dilute sulfurous acid is used in the winemaking process, mostly to control unwanted bacteria and to some degree to control unwanted yeast. And John had this low SO2 approach that was, I would say, unconventional, but within the boundaries of understanding in Northern California. And I thought, why not take this and push it further? And nobody could really tell me what would happen. People said, well, you know, you can't do that. It won't work. There'll be spoilage. But it was hard for people to say precisely what would happen. So the first step that I took was making wine without SO2. And the first Chardonnay that I made was a no SO2 Chardonnay. And I didn't even know enough about the world of winemaking to know, first of all, that this was unconventional by North American standards, but maybe completely conventional and historical in some other places in the world. And I also didn't know at the time that there was a rebirth or a birth of a movement that was interested in working with less SO2. All of this happened for me in a vacuum that I have since burst. And so I now have connections and understanding with the rest of the world. But at the time, it was a solitary thing. And the wine didn't spoil at all and was very good. But I remember John's critique about two years after harvest and three or four months after bottling. He said that the wine was tired. He said that if I kept making wine without any SO2, I would would be producing wines that would be a snapshot of the vintage, but only for a small amount of time. That without more SO2, the wines wouldn't be able to preserve what they had caught for a long enough time to be of historical interest. Do you think that's actually important? Uh, you know, is that something you strive for, wines that can age well? I just ask because it seems like the emphasis just in the amongst consumers now is for uh, something that's new and something that's drinkable, you know, fairly quickly. I mean, I don't own a Scottish castle with a huge cellar myself. I, I just wonder, is it something that's important for a wine to age for a long period of time? God, it is so interesting to be able to hold on to wines that to me it seems like a very important thing. And so I would say that from the very beginning, I was interested in making wines that would afford pleasure immediately. I did not want to make any wines that anybody would have to put down in order to enjoy. But now that I've been making wines for a few years, I think my greatest pleasure is to pull out older bottles, especially of white wine, and to see not just how they have developed, but to be able to revel in their standing up against time. So... I would say my favorite vintages of my wines to drink right now are probably 2006 and 2007. And I mean white wines. We're not even talking about red wines. And did you feel that there was a strong uh, interest in what you were doing from the consumer side of the market? Because it, it seemed for you know, a good 20, 25 years, like the, the California wine market was really interested in, in emphasizing varietal really interested in emphasizing brand. And it seemed like you were coming out and saying, hey, maybe technique's important too. Maybe how we're handling things in a vineyard is important too. Uh, Not so much just uh, hierarchical reputations of wineries and also not so much just international, uh, uh, internationally acceptable grape varieties. Maybe we'll try some different things. Um, In a way, it seemed, you know, like a break from a lot of what had happened and a a break in a fairly... uh, Fairly, uh, you made a few bottles. It wasn't just like a one-off and uh, you did some different projects. Um, 
you know, what was, what was it like on, on the driver's seat of that? Well, it was, it was, it was, and still is very exciting. Now I have lots of colleagues. There are many of us that I think feel like we're part of the same movement. And now the funny thing is, I look like one of the more conservative members insofar as I make a lot of Sauvignon Blanc and no right. Trousseau Gris. Right. But there really was a time not so long ago. Like four years ago. Like four or five years ago, where the notion of working with Carignan or Petit Syrah as opposed to Cabernet and Pinot Noir looked not exoteric or exoteric, but even kind of crazy. Mm. And I gave a wine to one of my names very early on that was to some degree, not just a naming of the wine because of what it was, but a naming of the wine in relation to the way that my friends and colleagues around me regarded what I was doing. And that name was Babylon. And the reason for that was, because I felt like the world that I was learning how to make wine and namely the world of Napa regarded itself the way that Rome did as the center of the world and the peak of civilization. And that anything was more, anything that was more than 40 miles outside of the city walls in the case of Rome, but maybe seven or eight miles outside of the city walls in case of Napa was regarded as the land of the barbarians. And do you think that that may have had something to do with the, the genesis of the, uh, we want to be the greatest in the world, Napa idea, that sense that like we were only striving for the very best and and that like drinkable wasn't what we were trying to do. We're not trying to come up with diversity or odd differences. Like they weren't saying like, hey, you know who really inspires me is that Chateau in the Loire. They were saying like Bordeaux, baby, we want to be the greatest. Did that affect the wine culture in a way that kind of stratified it into people trying for the same idea of greatness? Levy, what's hilarious, in order to answer that question, I would have to listen again to your discussion with John Bonet. Because I feel like so much of what I now know and understand about the history, the recent history of winemaking in Northern California was not grounded in that interview, but absolutely honed and filled in by it. This is my sense that even when I was at the very beginning and had no reputation and... There was, I don't want to say difficulty selling the wine, but there was never an appetite there waiting for the wine. I had to find the right door to open and somebody who had an interest or a thirst. Even at that time, I recognized that everything I was doing was only possible because of what Robert Mondavi had done 30 years before. And so even if he's the one who to some degree has set Napa on the path of following Bordeaux and understanding itself as the acme of wine production, he is somebody that I feel infinite gratitude for. And I think all of us who are making Rodejo and Trousseau Gris are only doing it in the wake of something that he made possible. Is the market, in terms of consumer interest, uh, going faster than the agricultural cycle? Like if it turns out that we go from... uh, finding Petite Syrah to be super adventurous to four years later, uh, thinking that Trousseau Gris is like what I really would like to find. Um, does that allow for actual time to plant things in a vineyard and get them right? Because, you know, four years to turn around for your first harvest. I mean, is the market, the consumer interest moving faster than what's possible on the production side? Yes, but only barely so. And I'm glad for that. We have all seen the overplanting first of Merlot and then of Pinot Noir. And even with the fact that the planting cycle can't keep up 
with the quick changes in consumer demand, we still have had overplantings. And I'm glad in a way that we can't change the agricultural side more quickly because it would be just as bad to have too much trousseau gris as to have too little trousseau gris. Do you think that there does tend to be a uh, a group or herd mentality in winemaking in the United States? Yes, I don't think there's any doubt about that. And and I don't mean to hold myself apart from that. I'm part of it. I feel I feel the the waves both of pressure but also of demand and of interest. And it's hard when all your friends are doing something cool not to be doing the same kind, not necessarily identically, but it's hard to be left out of that. So it's funny because I just I I listened to my own answer for a moment. And my answer was about what it feels like to be part of a group, not what it feels like to be marketing wine. So to some degree, there is commercial pressure, but there's also an interesting kind of social pressure. But a lot of times we hear about uh, independent producers having a hard time trying to make it into the distribution model in America. What is the reality? Because, you know, I was recently asked, hey, is this wine readily available? And I thought, well, yeah, I see it everywhere. So then I looked on Wine Searcher and it was available in six states. Right. Which, you know, those are big states for wine drinking, but, you know, 50 states, six of them. I mean, what is the reality for a, a producer like yourself doing something offbeat? Now you've done it for a few years. What's the reality of actually getting that into tables across America. Is that even possible? It's very, very difficult. It's not difficult because there are not distributors who are interested. I'll try to answer that without using a double negative. Right now, all across the country, there is interest at the distribution level. And I'll tell you a couple, if you don't mind, a couple interesting stories about bumps that distributors that I've worked with have had. The difficulty is getting the wine from the distributor's warehouse into people's homes. So I'll give you an example. There's a new distributor in Louisville, Kentucky, that was born from a huge beer distributor. It's the opposite of what usually happens. Usually beer distributors gobble up interesting small wine distributors. This was an interesting distributor. I think Budweiser was probably most of what they sold. And the boss of the company had some, not an overwhelming, but some interest in fine wine. And he said to his top sales guy, he said, look, I want you to create a fine wine division. So I got an email from this guy and I was so interested in what he was doing. I liked the way that it was in some degree countercultural. And it, even though I was gonna be working with somebody who had a huge checkbook in the world of wine distribution in the middle of the country, he was an underdog and I said, absolutely. And I hooked him up with as many of my, as, of my friends as I could. And he put together what I considered a really healthy order. What he, what he also considered not, I think, um, a dangerous order, not dangerous for him. I think he, that he thought that it was cautious. That was about two years ago and I bet he sold 50% of the wine. And it's no lack of interest in his part. It's that the market for these esoteric wines outside of a couple places in the United States is very, very difficult to establish. So in Louisville, Kentucky, I'm probably in three or four restaurants and probably among the best and most interesting restaurants in the city. I'm in one retailer that I absolutely prize and that's probably all that will ever happen in Louisville. So my feeling is that for offbeat uh, peripheral producers like me, there are markets for us all over the country. Oklahoma City, there's a restaurant that I feel passionately for and that feels passionate about my wines, but I don't think there are two such restaurants. So my view is we can be in 40 states, but none of us can ever imagine that we're going to sell much wine in those 40 states. Would it help if you could go direct to consumer? Like if you could take out the three tier? I know you said there is a lot of 
interest from the distribution uh, setup. But say that that one restaurant didn't have to convince a distributor. Say they could just go straight to you, and maybe that's the only restaurant that went straight to you out of that state. But would that broaden your reach across the states? Levy, what I think is five years ago, that would have been really important because distributors were much more conservative then. Right now, what I find is if there is one such restaurant, that restaurant has almost no difficulty convincing a distributor to pick up Scolium. Is that true? Yeah, that's my sense. Not everywhere. Like right now, I'm working really hard to break into Maryland and Washington, D.C. And again, I don't think I'm going to sell much wine there. But there are two or three restaurants, one retail store in D.C. that I really want to be in. I'm having a hard time finding somebody to pick me up there. But there are other states where all it takes is one phone call from a restaurant and a distributor picks me up. How important is is blog word of mouth? I mean, I, I write a blog and I feel like because I write a blog, I'm like every other blogger. I think it's important. Uh, but then sometimes I hear people say like, you know, it really doesn't matter how many write-ups you get. It, it just doesn't actually move bottles. It's so hilarious to now be representing the establishment side of the counterculture. Yeah. Because my wines have been around long enough that to some degree their reputation is established. And here is my sense. My sense is the market for my wines is so limited that it's almost saturated. And what I mean by that is something like this. I believe that there are 600 to 1,000 people in the United States who will drink my wines with some regularity. And I've reached, I've reached 75 or 80% of them. So for me, my sense is the blogs are confirmation to those people, not a way of getting out the word to new possible followers, drinkers. But at the beginning, there's no way that the Scolium Project could have gotten started without the internet. There is absolutely no way. I did not have a promotional budget. I couldn't have printed things. I couldn't have made cards to leave at Bouchon. It was impossible. <clears throat> but the Parker Bolden board that existed at the time, uh, free without uh, requiring membership, and Lyle and a couple other people who had what are now called blogs, those people made the Scolium Project. There's no question about that. And when I say those people, I don't always mean the bloggers because the, the Parker Bolden board where people could interact with each other, that was extremely important to the foundation of what I do. My sense right now is I treasure the responses to my wines on blogs, but I think that what it means to the consumers of my wines, whether actual consumers or potential, is not so much the opening of eyes, but more like reminding or confirmation. How much is embracing the negative important? I feel like in some ways, uh, Scolium's attention was in some way born out of controversy. You know, you talk about the Parker board. I mean, I imagine that not all of that was positive, you know, probably some yeah, people were absolutely. like, this is sucks. And then, but <laughs> other people were like, why are you saying that sucks? What's going on with that? Yeah. You know, oh, you're going to ban it? You know, that kind yeah. of thing. I mean, one of the things I saw, I remember a guy did a write-up of your wines and it wasn't really positive. And you contacted that guy and you said, hey, I want to fly out and have dinner with you. We'll open up more wines. You seem like an inquisitive guy. Uh, let's talk more about this because I feel like you are trying to understand and let's understand together. I'll understand you. You understand me. How important is embracing the negative and how important is that in an, in an era where at least up until very recently, things have gotten very personal in terms of uh, attacks online? You know, I'm going to come back to what you asked about the, about the personal because I was really surprised that was the direction that your question was going in. So I, I want to answer what I thought was the first part 
and then I'll answer sure. what turned out to be the second part. So embracing criticism is absolutely essential to what I do because I made a decision from the beginning to make wines that were going to be difficult. I don't want to make wines that are not pleasant, but I understand completely that not everybody will find my wines pleasurable. I feel a responsibility to make wines that are pleasurable, but not by doing something like making wines that are so innocuous they'll appeal to everybody. What I would prefer is for the wines to be challenging, intensely rewarding for some people, and even if they're disgusting for some other people, I want to work with those people. All I mean by work with them, stay in contact with them, just as you said, understand what they're reacting to, but I don't want to make a wine for them. So I have never thought that there was anything bad about any level of criticism aimed at my wines. And I've said something I think kind of obvious from the beginning, the worst thing that I can imagine is somebody shrugging. That's the worst thing. I don't mind somebody taking the glass and even pushing it away. That's something I can understand. And to some degree, that's a confirmation of what I'm doing. The shrug would be a sign to me that somewhere something went wrong. So then when you asked about what's personal, I've never found that any attacks were personal at all. And I know that to some degree, I don't even know how to put this, but the brand of Scolium Project is very closely identified with me, the founder, the winemaker, the guy who sells all the wine, but I have never seen an attack verge, or an attack, a criticism move from a criticism of the wine to a criticism of me. Even when sometimes I think the worst possible thing I've seen is people will look at what I write and post myself, for instance, the message that I sent to my mailing list, just last night, they might look at something like that and say, oh, this guy looks like he's writing a serious report, but in fact, what he's really doing is sophisticated marketing. That's the worst kind of thing I've heard. Mm, that's that's unfortunately cynical in, in this particular instance, I think. Yeah, yeah. Nobody said that about last night, but um, yeah, it is unfortunately cynical, but I feel like I put myself out there. I really have to be willing to accept any kind of response. So... You know, one of the things we have seen in America, even from Robert Mandavi, but also Randall Graham would come to mind, would be uh, a personal brand of marketing where the the person, as you just mentioned about being yourself identified with Scolian Project, is identified with the, the wine wines that they sell. Um, how much is that reflective back on you? I mean, do people expect you to come in and talk about independent film? Are you supposed to be into hip jazz records? I mean, to what degree is that real to what degree do you say like yeah actually i kind of like beyonce sometimes or not i mean i mean where, where where do the expectations fall and how do you react that's such a good question i don't even know the answer to that i mean i have a sense that what you're asking about is always there as an undercurrent as i move through the world in which i sell wine and also the world in which i hang out with people very often those worlds intersect with each other and I do not know to what degree people have specific expectations about, you know, hip jazz versus Beyonce. Nobody's ever put pressure on me in any way. I'm thinking about something that you didn't ask about, but that is related, and that is the question of what you drink. In other words, nobody, I don't ever feel like I've had the sense from anybody who is in some way related to what I'm doing commercially. I don't think I've ever had the sense from them that I need to measure up in my own taste for wine. Is that true? Yeah, I don't think I've ever had that sense, but in a way, I think that's surprising. How much, how much does Europe play in inspiration what you're doing? Um, 
it's an, it's an absolutely total inspiration. There are people that I have learned everything from in California, from one of the first people that I worked with at Stag's Leap, Michael Salachi, Jeff Ernig from Robert Sinsky. He wrote a recipe for me for a wine that I had no idea how to make. And John Kongsgaard has taught me more than any other human being, except for some specific models that I could give, like Wernig's Pinot Blanc for Robert Sinsky, the models and inspiration have come almost all from Europe. And to some degree, that reflects the wines I was interested in before I was making wine. In other words, it's a residue of my past rather than a kind of openness to new things. But to some degree, it's also about discovery. When I started making wine, I'd never had a Gruner Veltliner. It was only, you know, maybe around 2000 that I'd had my first Gruner Veltliner. And it changed my life both as a wine drinker and also as a winemaker. George Ver introduced me to Colio and Friuli, and maybe no place has had more influence on me than Colio. So, I mean, <clears throat> let me ask you. You know, here you are very thoughtful about what you do each year. You, you do write written reports and sometimes kind of manifestos about how you do it. What is the level of interest in technique today, like how wine is made is that uh, something you've witnessed your entire time in making wine? Or is that uh, seemingly getting bigger every day? Or is it declining every day? What, what is the interest in like, hey, this is how it's done. This is, what it, this is what we do behind the curtain. That's such a good question. I don't know the answer to that. But I can tell you this, that I have known from the very beginning of my having any relation to sales, which even antedates Scolium Project, I was selling Luna wines before I ever sold the first bottle of Scolium. I went on the road for Luna in the winter of 2002, and I also hosted people at the winery at Luna. And I know from the very beginning, all that I was interested in was talking about vineyards and talking about what you might call winemaking technique. Vineyards, you can only talk about to a small degree because you immediately descend into the sentimental and the pictographic. And at a certain point, the conversation for me becomes almost empty. And I don't mean that the sentiment or the picture of the vineyard, they're not interesting, but there's only so much you can say. But the crazy thing is, I feel like you can talk about SO2 for hours. And I don't mean when I say that I'm interested in technique, that I'm interested in celebrating my technique or anybody other or anybody else's. I'm interested in investigating both the consequences, but also the reasons why people make technical decisions. I'm really interested in why somebody would choose either to allow malolactic fermentation or to inhibit it. But as somebody who needs to bring about the consequences of decisions, I'm also really interested in how you get something to happen. Um, you know, you mentioned about the vineyards, and I often agree. I, I, I tend to think of them almost like totem poles. Like, they have a certain power to them, but at the end of the day, you can kind of be like, well, that's a beaver, and that's, you know, maybe a, some kind of gator-eagle combina combination. And that's really all you can say. But when you're standing in front of them, they seem to have a, a cultural resonance that seems much more but you can really only say well well yeah it's it's carved wood and then they paint it you're not really sure how it all comes together like to make it more than the sum of its parts at a like a inspirational or cultural level i you know and and really all you can do is like take a picture and be like well it's limestone and it's 18 hectares 
I mean, are we missing out on part of the conversation uh, in, you know, I don't grow wine. So I don't, I don't grow vines. I didn't grow up that way. Is there something that we're not seeing? Is there something that's understood that we miss out on when we buy grapes? Let me start by talking about a vineyard closer to where we are now, about a vineyard on the North Fork of Long Island. One of the most amazing vineyards I've ever seen in my life is on the North Fork of Long Island. It's a property farmed by Joe McCary. And I wish I could, I wish I knew the the geography better, but I, I'm never the driver out there. I'm always in the passenger seat or even the back seat. Darren's the driver, huh? Darren's the driver or Christopher. Uh, but Joe has two properties and one of them goes right up to the sound. And it's a property that he's farmed for at least 10 years, maybe longer than that. And he's farmed it on and off biodynamically to some degree organically to the highest degree that he can. But he is the, he is one of the most careful farmers that I know anywhere in the world. And he is so devoted to the soil that he will make decisions to enhance the life of the soil at the expense of the life of the vines. And maybe that's the wrong way to put it about the life of the vines. It's never that he harms the vines, but we'll be yelling at him to do pruning practices or thinning practices that we feel will make the quality of grapes better. And what he's saying is, you know, I really got to do this compost treatment because what I'm most interested in is the soil. You can go to his vineyard and you can have a sense pretty much without stepping out of the car that you're in an amazing magical place and it's a combination of the natural qualities of the land there but also the way that he's farmed it he has rolling hills in a place where there are almost no rolling hills at all the elevation from one part of the vineyard to another will change by 40 50 maybe at most 100 feet so we're not talking about steeply sloping hillsides we're not talking about the mosul or even seneca lake we're talking about places where the differences are subtle, but there's something about the way that he managed the property and the way that he has farmed it. Those subtle differences have a kind of explosive power. So that for me is a vineyard that is so worth visiting and it would be so hard for me to say anything more than I, what I've said already to convey to you why it's a special place capable of growing special wines. I can talk a little bit about the drainage. The drainage is important. The life of the soil, very, very important. But yeah, at a certain point, it breaks down. You need to be there. But I also have other vineyards in California that I work with where the difference between one vineyard and a vineyard only, it could be 50 yards away, are so starkly different that it's not hard for me to say what is so special about vineyard one and what is kind of pedestrian about vineyard two. If everything were to work out, you... You know, a lot of times with experimenters, you can't really ask them, hey, where would you like to be in 10 years? But, you know, one of the things that you do is you you revisit ideas that you've had, you scratch them out on the, on the, uh, the idea sheet, you know, on the report. You kind of like revisit things. And I think you're very thoughtful, even though you're very experimental. If everything were to work out, where would that put you in 10 years? And is it, after this experience with the hurricane, necessarily going to be on two coasts? The answer is yes, about necessarily on two coasts. I, I said this in the newsletter that I that I sent out to my Scolium project mailing list last night. I said, I'm able to make wines not only as good from fruit grown on Long Island as I can from fruit grown in California. I think that I might even have the possibility of making better wines here. The wines that I am overwhelmingly interested in are white wines. The vineyards, it doesn't make any difference to me whether they grow red grapes or white grapes. And that's one of the reasons that I make red wines is because I have met 
vineyards that I feel an absolute compulsion to work with. But if it weren't for the fact that they were growing red grapes, I might choose only to make white wine. What we can do with Sauvignon Blanc and Chardonnay from Long Island to me is absolutely amazing. One of the reasons for it, it's easy to point to this and it becomes uninteresting after a while, but I feel like I can make wines of equal intensity at 12.5% alcohol from Long Island fruit, whereas in a normal year in California, we're talking 14 to 16% alcohol for the same level of ripeness, intensity, complexity. So there's no way that I'm giving up both coasts, no matter how difficult it is coping with the vicissitudes of weather out here. And when you ask where in 10 years, one of the things that I'm most interested in is making a sparkling wine from Long Island fruit. There are vineyards there that produce Chardonnay at such a level of intensity and complexity for us as table wine at 12, 12 and a half percent, that I'm really fascinated with what would happen if we use those grapes, for instance, from Joe McCary's vineyard, from Ron Gurler's Jamesport vineyard, if we use those as the base of sparkling wine. So that's, that's one thing that I really do hope to accomplish in the next 10 years. When you have low alcohol white grape varieties, how important is it to add a level of oxygen into the process so that the wines seem to have more complexity at a younger age? Oh, that's, that's such a good question. And it's really closely tied with the two previous questions that you asked me, because I would say the biggest thing that I have learned in the last couple of years, learned not in the sense of correcting mistakes, but in the sense of progressing in my own interests and abilities, is the wines that I learned how to first make in California were high oxygen exposure wines. That was was what I was most interested in. I was not interested in protecting wines from oxygen. I was interested in making wines that were tough enough that they could suck up the oxygen and make it part of them. And when I mentioned Jeff Fernick's Pinot Blanc, after I had come to know Gruner Veltliner and really respected these wines, I thought, I need to start making wines like the wines I'm now loving to drink. I need to learn how to make a low oxygen wine. And the model for me in the neighborhood was the Sinsky Pinot Blanc. So I asked Jeff for the recipe and it turned out to be so simple. I thought it must be so hard to make a wine like this. And it's not, it's just two or three things differently from what I was doing before. One of them is using SO2 where I had never used SO2 before. So I learned that if I wanted to make a certain kind of wine, I'm not saying that SO2 is the only way, I learned really recently about some very interesting practices by Benanti on Mount Etna, who completely avoid using SO2, but to make some really interesting, intense white wines that are not highly exposed. Maybe to the oxygen. best white wine in Italy. I mean, maybe. Yeah. Pietro Marino. No, I'm, I mean, I'm a kidding. The, I, I literally cried when I tasted that wine. In any case, what I feel like I've learned in the last few years is to make wines that are higher in acidity and demand much more vigilant use of SO2. And that started for me in California, not in New York. So the long answer to your question is, your question was so intelligent, but it's not the direction that I'm going in with the New York wines. My sense is in New York, we can still expose these wines to an extremely high degree of, oh, maybe it is actually, now I'm thinking more about your question. We can expose the wines to a high degree of oxygen in New York and maintain much more freshness than I can in California. What I have learned in California is in order to make wines that I want to drink more than the wines I've been making in the past, is I have to make not all, but more of my wines with more SO2 and to 
to preserve them from exposure to, uh, to oxygen. How much has uh, generational change really played out in both in the production side and the consumption side and winemaking in the in what you see? Because you said you hang with the 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 new generation of yeah. you know the the people who are at least uh, getting more kind of attention uh, from the more kind of tuned in wine writers in California. You're working now in in New York, and one of the things I've heard is that we've seen some some renewed interest in in grape growing there as opposed to a more hobbyist that's more a little bit moving into more professional what what's going on with generational change both on the california side and at the wine buyer side you know as younger sommeliers come in what happens well i think i think that the world of selling and buying wine has changed radically in roughly the last 10 years let's say when i first went into the market with luna in 2002 Many really good restaurants had a person who was called a sommelier, and I might have been about 40 at that time, and that person would have been my age or earlier or older, and that person would have had a pretty good knowledge of Bordeaux and Burgundy, and an Italian restaurant may be a pretty good knowledge of Barolo, maybe some knowledge of Tuscany focused on super Tuscans, and that would have been the edge of their knowledge. And I would say is only five or six years after that, that anybody I met on the buying side was somewhere between 25 and 30 years old and had an explosive thirst for knowledge from outside of that border. And I think, I think that that is leading what consumers are exposed to and consequently what they're interested in buying. And then the work of people like Eric Asimov has only buttressed that. It's hard to know what is leading the way, what is following. But the consequence of this is that people all over the country are being exposed to wines that 10 years ago, nobody would have recommended to them. How important is price point in this kind of wine? If you're breaking new wines into a market, what is what is possible in terms of pricing? Because I, I feel like in one way, people left Bordeaux because it got expensive and they couldn't offer it to customers at a price that they felt comfortable with. People were looking, you know, even though people spend $100 on a bottle of wine and they spent $100 on a bottle of wine 10 years ago, what they're buying is different now. I agree with that. So where do you find that it works to pay your staff, pay the people who work for you, make it uh, something financially successful for you, but break a new product into a market in an area where we know it costs a little bit more to make wine in California than it does if things are grandfathered in in Italy or France where you've inherited it, you know, a, a cave and a chateau or vineyards from your parents and you didn't have to do any outlay. You didn't have to lay out a new mortgage for that. You didn't have to build new construction to make wine in an older business model. Now you have people in California with very high rents, fairly high labor costs. How, how important is it if you're going to do things that are experimental, that maybe take cues from Europe, where do you price it? I'm still investigating the answer to that question. I don't know. Um, and when I say I don't know, I don't mean that I don't know where you price it. I'll tell you how and why I have set certain price points. But what I don't know yet is whether I've created a model that's sustainable. I don't know the answer to that. I decided before the recession of 2008 that it was very important for me to make wines that were moderately, I don't even know how to put it. They're surely expensive by the standards of normal human beings in the United States, but they were inexpensive by Napa Valley standards. 
So I started making uh, Verdejo from the Clarksburg region, the Sacramento River Delta, and I priced it at $28 retail, which is expensive. I mean, I don't buy a lot of wines at $28 retail, and anything that's above that probably counts as a special occasion wine for me. Yet, where I was working in Napa at the time, that was an inexpensive bottle of wine. And then when the recession hit, I cut it to $24 a bottle, and I cut it before there was any drop in sales because I wanted to be recognized as one of the good guys. I wanted, I wanted that, and I never did any calculations about what it would do to my profit margins if I did that. I'm not sure that, that proceeding in that way is a good idea. It's not clear to me yet that the Scolium project is sustainable. It's been around for 10 years, but I don't yet have what you might call a stable and successful business model. I'm still trying to figure out those questions, but I can say this with certainty, that it is absolutely essential for me to have a wine at about $24 retail and a red wine at somewhere between 28 and 32, or the Scolium project, even as small a footprint as it has and as uh, very uh, shallow, I don't know what to call it, but uh, there, there are no peaks that are recognizable from a great distance. Even with our small level of visibility, if I didn't have those wines, there might be no visibility at all. And is that partly because of uh, not just retail, but also because if you're coming in under twenty dollars wholesale, it can be poured at a restaurant? Oh, absolutely. I mean, for me, it's absolutely essential for the for my wines to be poured because I, I don't want the Scolium project to be this thing that you've heard about. I mean, that's great, but you also have to be able to taste the wines. And given that they're weird and that it's going to cost you at least twenty eight bucks to buy in or twenty four, twenty five bucks to buy in retail, it seems to me that's a lot to ask of people. Not so bad to ask them to shell out 12, 15, 16 bucks to get a glass somewhere. So one of the things that was interesting to me uh, in terms of kind of recognition of of a brand, okay? So like Scolium Project makes a fair amount of wine. One of the things that was interesting to me was with the Red Hook Winery, uh, that in, in addition to making a fair amount of wine, different bottlings, uh, different grape varieties, different vineyard sources, you also had two different winemaking regimes uh, kind of side by side. You had uh, Mr. Foley from Pride Mountain Vineyards uh, working on his side and yourself in a very kind of what I would think as, as, an, as just a casual observer, a very different style uh, working on your side. Um, how does that affect kind of the market reception? Was there one response to Scolium and another to Red Hook or what was the reality? It's, it's, it's fantastic because for some people it makes no difference at all, which which was the fundamental point. The fundamental point of having two winemakers was that the work that we were doing not be identified with any single philosophy or any single style. But nonetheless, we made a decision to put a little emblem on each bottle so that in case you were interested, you could tell. And so the great thing is, I feel sure that there are some people who buy, especially Bob's Reds, because they're Bob's Reds and they're in a certain style. And there's some people who buy my wines, maybe especially the skin fermented whites, precisely because they represent a philosophy approach and a style of wine that would not allow those people or would not prompt them to cross over to the other winemaker's work. But those people are in the minority. The majority of people who buy our wines are buying Red Hook wines. And I love the fact that very often nobody cares who the winemaker was. That seems to me that seems to me a really clear affirmation of what we're doing. We're working with vineyards in a specific place, working as carefully as we can. It's true, there are two different regimes, two different sets of protocols, but in the long run, the differences between them melt away. So if you 
just an example, and maybe this doesn't even refer to your own work and, and Bob's, but maybe it's just something I'd like your, to weigh in on. If you pick a little earlier and you use carbonic and you try to emphasize fruit as a result, or you pick later and use conventional winemaking and you try to emphasize fruit as a result, how different are those two things? If Radically you're both different. both trying to emphasize yeah. fruit. Radically different. Um, and that's something that I've come to understand through my own experience. Uh, to some degree, it has helped to contrast what I'm doing with what other winemakers, both in Northern California and Europe, are doing. But the specific answer to your question is the difference for me is like night and day. And very so often as a wine drinker and as somebody who drinks sometimes analytically for the sake of understanding and applying the lessons, sometimes I get it wrong by tasting and then imagining for myself how the wine was made. But mostly the traces of those two different decisions are so strong that you can't confuse the results. As a wine drinker, there are many wines that are made in what you might call the pick earlier in carbonic style, which are not to my taste. As a winemaker, the activities involved in making that kind of wine, they are moderately to my taste. I have to admit that some of what I like about making red wine is the process of extraction. The way that we make wine at Scolium Project and the way that we make the reds under my regime at Red Hook is with a pretty high degree of foot stomping or pigeage or whatever you want to call it. Right now at Scolium, I only make one red wine a year in a tank. Everything else is made in puncheons with human beings climbing into the puncheon to punch them down with their feet and not with their arms. And at Red Hook, I don't think we have made a Scolium Project wine in a tank maybe since 2008 or 2009. So that activity of the human immersion in the red fermentation is very important to me doesn't mean that every wine is made that way, but to some degree, I can't imagine making red wine without the human immersion. In the, in the 90s, during the old days, we used to talk a lot about the quality of the tannins. And, and in hindsight, it seemed like people were looking for soft tannins. And in your own winemaking, I've encountered some grape tannins that weren't oak tannins. Uh, they were noticeably structured grape tannins coming from uh, the skin of the grape. And, and in this case, it was often white. Now, you know, orange wines are a thing, but what is the difference between grape tannins and oak tannins? And where do tannins play in your own physiology of, of the idea of a good wine? It's so funny because I know that because of the alcohol level, my wines are often associated with, with at least ripeness and probably to some degree overripeness. So it's going to sound funny to hear this, but or maybe it'll seem funny to some people that I'm saying it. But the most important thing for me is acidity in the same way that somebody making 11% Shannon might say the most important thing is acidity. But tannin for me and acid play a great role helping each other. One of my feelings was as I was learning to make wine in California is that I could support what I thought was a deficient level of acidity by building in more tannin. And people sometimes say, why don't you just pick earlier? And, and my reasoning for that is there is no question in my mind as I work with the vineyard, I have a sense of what the optimal ripeness in the vineyard is. And I will not sacrifice that optimal ripeness for acidity, nor will I buy tartaric acid in a bag and pour it in. So I felt like I have had very few options if I want to live and work in Northern California, but make wines with a certain texture and a certain structure. 
I feel like the option of picking earlier is not open to me. I'm making the right picking decisions for ripeness, flavor, intensity, even if it's at the expense of acid. So I would say the first reason why I got involved with skin fermented white wine is to use tannin to buttress acidity. And I mean that almost in a chemical way. And when I say almost, what I mean is I sense as the wine is fermenting and tannin is coming out of the skins and the seeds, that the tannin is somehow knitting together with the acid, keeping the acid from falling out, from precipitating, and they form some kind of bond. I don't know whether it's true at the molecular level, but there's no question that one can sense it in the winery. Those two things get together from the very beginning, and they give the wine a different life and a different future than the white wine without the tannin would have had. What, what do you like to eat with the wines that you make? That's a very good question. The wines that are skin fermented that have tannin for me always come later in the meal uh -huh. or if not matched with something that is either already tannic like walnuts. The family that I work really closely with in California, the Tenbrinks, they're fabulous walnut farmers. I've had the best walnuts of my life from their farm and I'll eat their walnuts with any wine that I make. But in particular, I like it with the red wines and the skin fermented whites and the skin fermented whites also with rich cheeses. But very often if I'm composing a meal, a skin fermented white won't be served until late in the meal when there's something really intensely flavored and charred or caramelized on the table. So you talked a little bit about being, you know, in California, seeing the, the gates of Rome, you know, what what was thought out hierarchically. What is the what is the sense now? Uh, it's fabulous. That has been overturned. I'm sorry that I cut you off, but I'm so excited by that question. And one of the people who is leading the overturning of this paradigm is Tegan Pasolacqua, who works for a Napa Valley winery. He works for Turley. But he's the one who I feel like is leading the rest of us into what used to be considered the hinterlands. And he bought a small vineyard in Lodi this summer. And there were people fighting to get his grapes and not even Zinfandel, which is considered at least a peripherally noble grape, but we were fucking fighting for the Pinot Grigio. It's crazy. So that has been overturned. There's no question. It's been overturned to such a degree that I have the smallest worry, but only the smallest worry, that people will start despising Napa Valley Cabernet vineyards that really are noble and that deserve recognition for their nobility. But that's the degree to which the paradigm has been overturned. And why do you think that is? I mean, I don't want to seem dumb, but I, I would l like your, your answer to some basic questions. Why is minimal intervention important to us? Why is it? Why is it important to me? Why is it important to you? And why are we bored with mm. what maybe was so popular mm. not too long ago. Yeah, let me let me answer the second question first. We're bored because winemaking in Northern California and to some degree throughout all of California by mimicry um, became homogenous. There's just no question about that. The financial side of winemaking in California until very recently has been extremely conservative. There's been so much money at stake and the money is in there, not for the sake of artistic expression, but for the sake of making more money. Consequently, UC Davis developed a curriculum that was devoted to preserving wine against spoilage. And I don't mean that that's not an interesting and important thing. It is both interesting and important. But for a long time, both on the educational side and on what you might call the hiring side, I'll put it another way. The ability of a Napa Valley winemaker to maintain a position as a winemaker once won 
depended more on the ability to prevent spoilage than the ability to hit the highest heights. And so the whole culture was conservative. There was a great degree of copycat. And that sounds like, I don't mean that as negatively as it sounded, because success had so much possibility for reward, it was very, very difficult to go against the grain. And their Napa Valley wineries like Stony Hill, for me, that's one of the most important that never bought into the model that was leading to millions and millions of dollars flowing in. They're, for me, absolutely remarkable people and remarkable wines because they watched something happen around them and they never jumped on board. And almost everybody else did. And for me, that's understandable. But what it led to was wine after wine made from a thousand different vineyards by a hundred different people that tasted like they were made by the same human being from the same land. So that's why we got bored. Seems to me that's not surprising. In a certain sense, that doesn't mean that we got bored by the potential of Napa Valley Cabernet, but we got bored by the actuality of Napa Valley Cabernet. I think it's also fair to say that there always will be changes in style and that the style of whatever you want to call them, hedonistic wines that hit its acme sometime late in the 90s, there's something stupefying and maybe even stultifying about that style. But that for me isn't the most important thing. It's not that that style was in itself empty or something like that. But it does, I think, have a possibility. And Asimov is one of the people who's so good at pointing this out. It does have a kind of, um, it has a velocity towards boring you. And I think that for me, I can also get bored by wines that one might consider high acid and thin, but you get bored in a different way by the wines that stultify you on the one hand or the ones that are sharply acid on the other. The question of why we prefer high, um, low intervention um, to what you might think of as a kind of manufactured winemaking, I think, degree, I think to the highest degree, that's related to the romance of winemaking not necessarily to the outcome. And one of the reasons that I think that is I have made wines that are very low intervention, but that are closer to the old Napa model. And I think that those wines maybe have had some appeal because of what you might consider the romantic side, but that appeal is balanced by the true nature of the wine. And this is a long answer to the question, but I feel pretty sure about this, that people judge the romantic side with one part of their mind and they react to the pleasurable side with another part of their mind. They eventually get tied together. There's no question about that. But I think you can sell a wine by telling the story without saying anything about what the wine tastes like. And that's a sign to me that the two are separable from each other. And so... There is something that we really like about the spontaneous nature of fermentation. And we also like what you might call the supremacy of the vineyard. And that means that the technical side that involves intervention is never going to be as romantically appealing as a story that involves holding one's hands away. What's going on with vintage variation? Do we still have it in Napa or is it pretty much uniform? Oh yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is terrifying for us, but it's also amazing. When I started working in Napa, 
um, there was only one year that stood out as a negative year, maybe in the last 20 years, and that was 98. That was like the only bad year. And yeah, some people said 97 was fantastic, 99 was fantastic, whatever. 98 was the only bad year until something like 2009 and then 2010 and then 2011. There is really vintage variation now. We don't know whether it's because of climate change or whether it's some more tightly wound pattern within anything that could be happening globally. But there is no question that there is now vintage variation. There are now strong differences between vintages that are not just uh, the matter of deliberation between uh, people who are very sophisticated. So back to what, what has occurred at, at Red Hook. Uh, you know, one of the things I thought you wrote about very movingly recently was is how other people came and helped you out. Who was down there? moving things around with you. So there were there were two or three days of really heavy work before I got there. And I wish I could say who was there before I got there. That I can't say, but I know that Talia Baiocchi showed up on my first day there with 30 wine boxes. And those 30 wine boxes were crucial to us because we already had a library of wines at the winery that were not Red Hook wines. And those wines, they floated off the shelves. I don't even know what happened to them, but I know that when I got there, there were hundreds of bottles on the floor my friend Joe Egan, who has nothing to do with the wine business, he's just a fan. Joe helped me get all of those bottles off the floor. Somebody else had already cleaned them. Anyway, we got them off the floor. We put them on a folding table, which immediately collapsed and broke 20 of the 100 or so bottles. What we needed in order to keep these bottles safe was cases. And none of us had time to get in a car, go away. I knew that Talia was coming to the winery, so I just texted her and I said, we need 30 wine boxes. She said, I'll be there with 30 wine boxes. We had this amazing winemaker from Domenico Clerico who'd come into town to sell wine, and partly because of the hurricane, he didn't have all the appointments that he'd wanted to. But when he heard that there was a winery in need of help, he showed up at nine o'clock in the morning, three days in a row, and did whatever we needed. A winemaker from Piemonte. This is Luciano? Yeah, Luciano. He's a good guy. Yeah, I'd never met him before. He's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And... Christopher and I were trying to think through the logistics of what we're doing, and it's difficult because there was so much destruction, so much havoc. We didn't have power. We didn't have lights. We didn't have a pump. So we're trying to think through a, a kind of new way to make wine, a very old way, but a new way without pumps and without lights. And it was wonderful having Domenico there, not because he'd had any experience doing that, but just having two brains instead of one, it was really wonderful. So he and I would kind of take turns thinking of things, figuring stuff out, and then we'd take turns sweeping up the floor. Let me ask you... Uh renaissance man well-rounded done a few different things when i look at your career arc warren winnozowski used to teach classical studies at university uh john kongsgaard used to be uh involved heavily with music music conducting and music composing uh yourself used to be a tutor at st john's college several of the people in your crew seems like if you know if they didn't uh lead a caravan through the desert maybe they did skydiving you know how much is wine, where does it fit in? Where do you find what you like in others to be something that's only given perspective through other things than wine? That's a really important question. I think that if there's anything at all important about what we do in making wine and getting it in front of people, it's this. At this point in the 21st century, maybe it is difficult to bring one's mind and one body, one's body together. 
I think one of the reasons that yoga is so attractive is probably because it accomplishes it and it accomplishes it accomplishes it in some way. Other para-athletic activities, whether running or rock climbing, they do it in some way too. But I think that one of the reasons there's such a fascination for both food and wine at the moment is because they engage the mind and the body in an inseparable way at the same time. And there's something so particular about wine drinking, not that wine is a better beverage than any other or more complex or something like that. There's something about many things together. Part of it is what you asked about before, the thing that I called the romance. So that it's not just the mind and body being engaged at the level of sensation, but there's imagination, thinking about history, thinking about genealogy. There's those thoughts at the same time. There's the fact that the alcohol level of wine is moderate as opposed to the alcohol level of many spirits. I mean, that's another factor. I've been thinking about this a lot, and there are times when I'm inclined to say that there is something really unique and special about wine and that you know beer never touches it. I'm not comfortable saying that. Maybe I haven't thought enough about beer. And I also am not comfortable saying in any way that wine is superior to food or the other way around. But I do know that one of the things that's so special about wine is the glass. In other words, it's so well contained. And a sip of wine can be complex in a way that the analogous portion of food rarely can be complex. What I mean by that is there are raw fish preparations that I'm absolutely devoted to and amazed by. And very often they consist only of the raw fish. But the, the number of times, no matter how delicious that raw fish has been, that it has the complexity of a sip of wine is not so often for me. So it's because you're here, bro. You got to go to Skiji. Yeah, no kidding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I recognize that. So I want to say that no matter what I say that puts wine at the forefront, to some degree, it's lack of experience. But anyway, I think that's why it's so important, the possibility of engaging the mind and the body together at a high level at the same time. How much is winemaking a boys club? How much do we expect or ask men to make the wine and women to sell it? Oh, that is, that's such an interesting question because at the moment, I, I don't think of winemaking at all as a men's club, but maybe I'm not thinking carefully enough. Helen Keplinger is one of my closest friends in Northern California and one of the winemakers that I respect most, but maybe she is more of an exception than I had realized. Uh, it's a it's such a good question. I mean, we can say Kathy Corson, yeah. Mary Edwards. No, you're right, but you're going to run out pretty soon. Yeah, but what about... When I look at your career arc, it's all dudes on the production yeah, side. Yeah, 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 yeah. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, I have had people that I've come up with, Nicole Abiunas and Annie Favia. These are people who also were educated by John to certain degrees and who were starting a little bit before me. But you're right. There's there's not a sea of women, and there is more like a sea of men. And then you're absolutely right about expecting women to sell the wine. There's no question about that. I mean, the the structure of wine sales in the United States is hilariously hidebound. Maybe I shouldn't say hilarious, but it's so extreme that it really is laughable. There's there's in so many markets a hierarchy of gangsters who are totally old school and descended from people who really and truly were gangsters 60 or 80 years ago. And then there's their army of sharp, beautiful women who hit the streets and sell the wine. I don't know what to say about that. Hey, thanks for being on our show today. Oh, what a pleasure. I wish you the best with the future rejuvenation of the estate. Thanks so much. The winery in Red Hook.
All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.